What is up, plant people? Yo, it's it's Friday, so that's weird. But we're back anyway with an episode of the Planthropology Podcast, the show where we dive into the lives and careers and ambitions of some really cool plant people and talk about nature and talk about plants and all kinds of cool stuff. I'm Vikram Baliga, your host, and I'm thrilled to be with you today. So uh, this is going to be a short intro because you should know uh, what's going on today, I hope. Um, this is part two of our episode about uh, archaeobotany with Dr. Alan Farahani, uh, Lydia Wolf, and Carlos Romo Caballero from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. I hope you have listened to part one. If you haven't, pause this right now. Go listen to part one. Uh, this will stand alone, but you'll get some important context, I think, if you listen to that one as well. So go do that. Come back, listen to this. That's all the intro I'm really going to give. These folks are awesome. You're going to love them. Uh, A few things that I'll discuss at the end, so stick around till the end of the episode, um, and I'll give you some information about uh, the birthday of the show, the show's birthday, and all that. But without any more blabbering, this is the shortest intro I'll probably ever do. Here is part two of Archaeobotany with Dr. Alan Farahani, Lydia Wolf, and Carlos Romo Caballero. All right. Well, welcome back to uh, part two of our conversation about archaeobotany and archaeology and anthropology and whatever else my crazy brain decides to, you know, what other rabbit trails I decide to chase us down. Um, But I'm back with uh, Alan, Lydia, and Carlos. And we, uh, in the first part of this, covered a a lot of ground about um, what is archaeobotany and and, uh, how these folks got into what they're doing. Um, and then in this part, we'll talk a little bit more about the specifics of the actual research they do and the, the things that they investigate as, as well as maybe what the future looks like. So, uh, thanks for, I'm not even going to pretend like we're not just recording this in one long thing. So thanks for not quitting after I cut the first episode. Um, but, uh, so we'll just, we'll just jump right back into it. Alan, so why don't you start us off just by telling us some of those um, pieces, uh, and artifacts that y'all actually look at? Sure. Yeah. So this, the, the question that I probably get most and that Lydia and Carlos have been spending so much time with is what is it that you are actually studying when you are an archaeobotanist or you're a paleoethnobotanist? What does that look like? What is the botany part of that? Well, the botany part of that is that, uh, we take dirt from archaeological sites we wash it, not literally, you don't like put it under a sink or put it in a laundry <laughs> machine, but we build a device called a flotation machine. And uh, if this weren't audio only, I could show you a video of what it looks like. It's essentially, there are a lot of different configurations of it, but you put dirt in one barrel and there's a spout at the end of the barrel. And those items that have a specific gravity, less than water float to the top. They come out the spout and then they get caught in a little trap, a nice little mesh trap uh, at the end of that spout. And those things that typically float to the top uh, are carbonized archaeological plant remains. So these are burnt plant remains and uh, they can be very old. Uh, They can be as old as whatever site it is that you're investigating. So um, and usually what we're looking for. And I, I should say that this is a macro botanical uh, investigation. Okay. There are people who study micro botanical 
uh, wow. uh, remains, which are typically, and for those of you who are, I think based on all your previous guests, there are a lot of folks who will know what I mean when I say phytoliths and starches. For mm-hmm. those who don't know what phytoliths and starches are, those are uh, two different kinds of microscopic uh, plant remains. One's organic starches, the other one's inorganic phytoliths. Uh, and that is a very separate process for collecting and analyzing those remains. So for the macrobotanical part, and that's mainly what I uh, specialize in, uh, we are looking at those things that float up in, in flotation. And then the next step is that we have to take that, let it dry, and then we bring it back to the laboratory and we sort that under a stereo microscope. And what we're typically looking at in there are seeds of plants and other very durable plant parts like roots, sometimes stems, uh, very infrequently the fleshy part of uh, a fruit, um, the so-called fleshy part. Right, uh, right. Right. <laughs> uh, that will preserve. And so actually this is where the botany comes in because there's a lot of training that's necessary in order to be able to identify all of these different kinds of seeds. So first you need to know about whole plant morphology. What is Hey, so editing Vikram here. Uh, unfortunately, our recording stopped. We had some weird issues and the call dropped. So there was about two minutes of really interesting, really great conversation in this part of the episode that I uh, don't have for you. And I'm really sorry, and I hate that uh, I lost it. We talked a little bit more about some methodology and um, the ways in which um, archaeobotanists find specific uh, samples and remains and how they identify them and and how they go about that. And so I I apologize for not having that piece of conversation from Dr. Farahani, but um, I'm hoping at some point I can maybe chat with him again and do another short uh, deep dive episode like we've done in the past um, about methodology. Sorry again, but uh, we'll jump back into it and there's lots more stuff to go. Okay, I don't know exactly when we lost it. So Carlos, if you'll back up just a step and talk about the the sites and the the importance of the site where you found some of those things in terms of time and all of that. Oh yeah. Um, so the site that I'm working on is Hispan. It's a site uh, that's located in uh, northern, well north. Let me let me think about it. northwestern uh, Jordan. Um, it's a site that's run by Dr. Bethany Walker out of the University of Bonn. I've been working on Hispan for about two years now. And the period that I'm looking at stems from the medieval times, uh, right around during the time that the Mamluk Caliphate out of Cairo was in power. It's uh, 1250 to 1400 CE. Um, And it's actually kind of surprising to find like seeds that aren't really grasses or cereals because uh, what textual sources and other previous in the excavations that Hispan have told us is that this site was primarily used to grow uh, grains. Hmm. And so I was kind of excited that I found something that wasn't a grain just because, you know, it gets monotonous looking at the same type <laughs> of seeds over and over again. There was a lot of wheat and cereals. So I found a prunus uh, shell uh, from, a, I think it was a peach. I'll have to double check that though. I know it's prunus, the, the actual genus of the yeah. tree or whatever. But that was pretty cool for me. Um, there was also in the same uh, sample, another seed of a different um, fruit is Crataegus. 
And mm-hmm. I'm blanking on the common name right now. Uh, uh, Hawthorne. Yeah, Hawthorne. Hawthorne. Yeah. Yeah. Another shell of those things. So it's a special little sight. It, well, that's that's really cool because it does paint an interesting um, kind of historical context for the the types of foods that they would have been eating or that at least were available, I guess that, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the region. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, and I understand looking at um, grasses or grass seeds, they all kind of look the same. And so that's uh <laughs> we do a lot of grass ID here because uh, mm-hmm. we're a grassland prairie. And I'll be honest, I've been studying this for a few years, 15 years. And I, sometimes people will put two grasses in front of me and I'm like, man, I don't know. It's their grass. <laughs> I just, just say it's grass and move on. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that is really cool though. That, yeah. that is really cool. Um, Lydia, what about you? What, what are some cool things that you specifically, you uh, yourself have seen uh, in doing some research? Um, so right now I'm doing, cause uh, I was working with Dr. Hari in the field at Shavuich Plateau. So I came back and I'm working on uh, some uh, dirt samples from the Shavuich Plateau as well. Uh, so some interesting things that I found are some identifiable seeds. We don't know what exactly they are yet. Like we think maybe we have an idea. Maybe they are, uh, what is it, juniperus? Mm-hmm. Or like juniper berries. So we're hoping maybe that is, and that'll be like, okay, they're using and processing juniper berries at the site. And maybe we, the other most exciting thing is that we maybe have found something with like a corn kernel or maize kernel. And so we're going to send those pictures off to uh, one of uh, Alan's colleagues and see if that's actually what it is or not. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And, and, you know, if I could, I, I wonder, you know, Carlos and Lydia, if you feel the same way, it's, it's actually, it's kind of exciting. Each sample that you put in front of you, you know, it looks like just a burnt mass of stuff, but that burnt mass, you know, each sample is telling you a different story. Um, and you never know what you're going to get from sample to sample. And all of a sudden you're like, whoa, um, you know, as Carlos mentioned that. It, it can be, it can, you know, it is time consuming. We have not yet found a way to use machine learning to, to help us uh, move through this quickly, but. Um, Reliable you know, static it, control. Right. The, there are some challenges, but uh, it is exciting from each sample to sample to say, well, you know, you never know what you're going to get. It's also that, really exciting when you uh, have previous research and you're finding stuff to back up the research too. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Uh, and, you know, you make an interesting point about how we don't necessarily have the machine learning um, to to do that. And I understand that, too, because, like, in a lot of agriculture, machines can do stuff, some stuff mm-hmm. for us, but there's still such a um, human component to it. Like, because ultimately, and then this is this is maybe more philosophical, mm-hmm. uh, but but. A, a machine, no matter how smart we can make it, mm-hmm. does not care about the food we eat and mm-hmm. doesn't care about the production systems and doesn't care about the people that went into it. And so um, I, I work a lot with farmers markets and small producers. And 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 one of the stories I served on the mm-hmm. board for a farmers market here locally for a couple of years. And one of the things that we get the question the most 
um, of, you know, consumers coming in to, to buy stuff is, um, what did you do? How did you do it? What was the process? What made you want to do it? They want that human connection. Mm-hmm. And and in the study of ourselves, in the study of um, our past selves, so to speak, I wonder how much, I don't know. I, I, I'm not r- real sure how to phrase the question I have, but it's, or, or not the question even, but the thought I have, but like, I wonder how much even a machine will ever be able to tell us about ourselves. I you know, it seems like y'all's field is one that you will almost always need a human brain and human eyes and human hands examining our own past, uh, because I think we can learn more from it that way. Um, Definitely. Yeah. Takes the human to know a human. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So to that point, there's some places where, I mean, I, I was sort of, half joking when I said, no, I know, I know, but but also half not because there's some, you're absolutely right. You know, and there have been a, there's a lot of discussion and debate about this, about, you know, the extent to which um, we can use some of these computational tools and uh, for depending on what you're interested in, there's some places where it might be useful. Like, like you said, you have those two grasses together and you're like, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but but maybe, you know, if there were a good enough machine learning algorithm, it would just be able to say probability of this, <laughs> blah. Um, so that's one place where maybe, but you're right, right now, as I think Carlos and Lydia and everyone else who works in the lab, because uh, we've got a really sort of, we, we've got a, a full team all working on different projects. They can tell you that human component um, is, is ever is ever present all, all the time. Uh, and that also, um, even the social dynamics, cause I'm sure, you know, like as your other guests, um, have pointed out, you know, that there's, I think some really important social dynamics that happen in the lab working with other folks and Carlos and Lydia, Lydia actually was the one who alluded to this and saying like, Oh, I don't know what this is. Can you help me out? Mm-hmm. So th- there's the science part, but then there's also sort of the, all the other bonds that we create and solving these problems together, which um, I think are really important that, uh, you know, we might lose if uh, in a fantastical world where automation could do everything. Right. Right. Oh yeah. No. And, and, you know, I, I totally agree that if I could have a machine sort things for me at the very least, like, okay, this is a pile of, seed from species a and this is a pile of seed from species b there'd you know be a lot of a, a lot of grad students and undergraduate researchers that would be a lot less stressed out there exactly <laughs> um, i remember when i was doing my i studied uh, olive trees for my master's and mm. olive oil production and uh mm. drought uh i did drought studies so looking at water conservation mm. but we did this one study where we had to get the density of olives an average density of olives so there's a lot of ways to approach that but the way that my pi decided we should approach that was with a caliper and a scale and so i measured the uh, north south east west and height uh to get an overall you know volume and weight of 2500 individual olives wow uh uh that was a long week like a, like a real long week. And if there was a machine that I was just like, here, take these olives and give me data. um, Exactly. I probably would have had a lot less to drink that week. Um, (laughs) But but, uh, uh, no, that's, that's really fascinating though. Just hearing some of those, those bits of information from just things that you've already learned and y'all are, 
that actually leads me in into kind of my next question. Uh, y'all are early in your career, and you have, um, you know, as as students, you've already found some amazing things. So this this question is more for uh, Carlos and Lydia, though. Alan, I do want to hear sort of your future plans as well. Uh, what do you hope to do? And I know that as college students, people say that to you, and I'm like your answer may just be, I just want to survive and graduate. And I get that. Um, but like, where, where do you kind of want to go? Do you have an idea of where you want your careers to take you? Um, well, I definitely want to go into grad school. I definitely want to continue in anthropology. Um, I'm not actually sure what I want to do with it though. Cause I, I've kind of immersed myself into like the cultural anthropology and archaeology, they're both really cool and interesting mm-hmm. in their own way. Um, but I haven't done like linguistic anthropology or a lot of physical anthropology either. Hmm. So I'm not sure yet. And then it doesn't help that I'm taking a lot of philosophy classes on the side. It's like, <laughs> it's really intoxicating. Um, so I don't know where it's taking me, but I'm excited and that's, for it. Yeah, and that's fine. You know, I, I think that's another important message that like there's, there's ideas of, of places you want to go and things you want to do, but you don't, you don't have to have it all, you know, totally mapped out right now. It's a kind of an exciting adventure to see where life takes you next. Uh, Lydia, same question. Um, I'm kind of like Carlos. I, I know for a fact that I do want to continue on to grad school, but as for like a career wise, I kind of want it to continue on with macrobotany or maybe even if I don't, continue on with like archaeology maybe like do something within like nps or something with like where i'm still kind of interacting with people but i'm also Mm. interacting with plants so that's kind of like the direction that i want to go but i'll see where it takes me like the wind of life (laughs) (laughs) i do get that though that uh, whole ethnobiology aspect of how humans can interact with their environment that's like what really fascinates me so wherever i do continue on it's going to be something to do with that in some aspect of how humans interact with nature. Very cool. In their various ways. I like to hear that. <laughs> that makes me, that makes me excited, you know, cause I think these are important fields of study uh, that not enough people really dive into. And it, 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 it's, it's cool for me to hear that y'all are so excited about kind of moving forward for it with it uh, through it. Um yeah. Alan, what about you? What, you know, you've, you've done a lot to this point, like where, uh, where are you headed with what, what are maybe some future research goals or things that you're interested in without, you know, giving away too much to the the world out there (laughs) without scooping myself. Right. Right. Yeah. Because I think a lot of your listeners know about the, the arc of the junior faculty um, and and where it's headed. Mm -hmm. Um, so a lot of my previous research has been done on, and I'm sort of wrapping up two projects um, right now. One is on this site in central Jordan that's been inhabited for 3000 plus years up to the present. And that, that's actually another thing I want to say um, really quickly is one of the great things about doing field research is talking to folks. And uh, Lydia saw this probably on the Schittwitz plateau and Carlos alluded to this with the uh, ethnobiology uh, component is, you know, talking to folks who are there today and just asking them questions like, what do you use this plant for? Right. And, and mm-hmm. it's amazing, you know, how many people will tell you like, okay, yeah, we go to the grocery store, 
but we, you know, we'll grab this and we'll use it for like all kinds of cool things hmm. plants use for balding or um, they'll grab some plants that they'll use for uh, when their stomachs are upset. And hmm. so it's really incredible, uh, all the communities that we work with. I mean, they, they invite us, right? We're their guests in the place that we work, um, and we learn a lot from them. So uh, one of those places was in Jordan, and, and really briefly, uh, I'm wrapping up some of the projects there, but to your point, actually, about sort of like what can we learn and what can we see and thinking about or earlier, I can't remember if it was this episode, last it episode. It doesn't even matter. <laughs> time, time. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm only an archaeologist. Don't worry about time. <laughs> <laughs> Time's the social construct. It's fine. It, oh, yeah, there you go. It comes in and out. Um, yeah. So oh, my, my. Uh, one of the cool things that we can see is that, again, because we have all these archaeological plant remains, all these seeds of what people were growing over 3,000 years, and we sort of know at this one site in central Jordan about the groups themselves and uh, what they were focused on is that even though there were constraints in the environment about what they could grow because there was only so much precipitation and there was only so much they could do with irrigation. It's actually possible to see how they're making choices about emphasizing certain things versus others at certain points in time. So like you're saying, whether they want to build a, a Walmart on top of uh, this area that they know, like that, you know, is with rain is just going to water is going to accumulate really rapidly. Um, that was a choice. And, and so what's really interesting is w we can see that um, there are all these choices that are being made by folks that are really compelled by their social, political, economic mm -hmm. circumstances. And that that's true very much. And, and we can see that over the past 3000 years. So that's that's one project that I've been wrapping up. And the name of that site is Debon. And um, and I've been very fortunate to collaborate with folks at many institutions uh, who are sort of spearheading that. Uh, and then the other thing that I'm working on moving forward, too many projects. <laughs> I know <laughs> but, the feeling. <laughs> but, but yeah, exactly. I think everyone is, and, and Carlos and Lydia can tell you that too, that they wear many hats in the lab and they're juggling a lot of things. Um, oh, yeah. But the project that I'm working on right now, very actively with a master's student, uh, Summer Shives, uh, in the lab, is uh, spearheaded co-director on the project uh, with Dr. Christine Marti-Rosian-Olshansky at UCLA. And we are looking at one of the earliest farming sites um, in what's today the Southern Caucasus. So that would mm. correspond to, um, unfortunately, very much in the news right now, Armenia, Azerbaijan, mm -hmm. and Georgia. Um, and it's a really cool site. And we're doing a lot there and thinking about um, you know, how did folks adopt farming um, and why did they adopt farming hmm. several thousand years ago? Um, and so we're looking at, again, the choices that people make and the, the things that are written about, like the, the earliest farmers. So we're looking at sort of what foods did they grow, what weeds were growing in their fields. We could have gone a long tangent about uh, uh Weeds and um, I actually just read a paper on the weeds and stuff and how some of them have been artificially selected over the generations based on how they look to like the crop seeds. And it's it's a little yeah. happy accident that I find fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Crop mimicry and weeds is really interesting. Yeah. And we see that we see all this stuff sort of even thousands of years ago in, in the samples that we're looking at, because that's the time span over which 
um, they're evolving to mimic the, these crops and compete with them in these fields. So um, it, it's been a really interesting, it's a really fascinating project and I'm really glad that she invited me on that. So uh, that's my research moving forward. And then otherwise, th there's all kinds of stuff not uh, associated with um, that specifically and uh, sort of keeping the lab together mm -hmm. um, and, and making sure, especially right now for the folks who are listening, they know it's really hard. Um, not every place will allow you to, you know, not every institution has its labs open right now. So mm -hmm. part of the creative thing, the short term thing is thinking about um, how we're moving forward with our lab work um, during these, these pretty challenging times for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that, that's certainly, uh, uh, quite the task. Um, because as a, you know, as a lab coordinator and I, that, that's not a place I'm in, but I do have, you know, student mm. assistance, uh, you know, part of your job and part of my job is making sure that we keep our folks moving along and, and keep them paid and keep all of that stuff. That's a lot of plates to spin. And then keep them safe. Yes. Oh, uh, yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. And you know, I take for granted that we're very much kind of an outdoor uh, facility here. So I can just, mm. you know, say, hey, go work outside and stay 10 feet apart. And you're probably all right because it's a million degrees and about as dry as you can get here. So, you know, everything will just burst into flames and it's fine. Uh, but no, safety right now with our, uh, with our, and, and so for, if you're listening to this in the distant future in year 10 of the Plant Apology podcast, and I've hundreds of episodes out and Spotify's bought me. Um, you know, this is, uh, we're, we're recording this in October of 2020 and, uh, there's, there's a lot going on right now. And so it's, uh, it's quite an interesting time to be in academia and be doing research for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think, you know, I'm, I'm looking through the, the list of questions we kind of talked about before, um, so one question we'll, we'll kind of start working our way towards an ending point here. Not that that's, not that it's going to end super soon, but, um, <laughs> again, I'm way too excited. I'm sorry. Uh, so, so, so here's a question I would love to, to hear your thoughts on. Um, and again, I'm not sure it's a super easy question to answer, but mm. are there ways, and, and we've, we've talked about this, um, kind of throughout the episode, but just to kind of put a point on it, are there ways do you th that you think we could apply the things that you study in antiquity uh, to our lives today? Is are there specific things you can think of? And I know that's kind of a tough question, but um, you know, one one of the overall I think themes here is is answering the question of why. You know, why do we study the things we study? Why? Do we dive into our past? And again, we've talked about a lot of these things already, but are, are there a couple of examples that you think we could really apply to modern day life, to our lives today? Uh, yeah, I have a lot to say here, but Carlos and Lydia, based on your work, um, what do you think? I don't know if I can provide specific examples, but like big General picture point. wise. Yeah. Um, I always think there's something to learn from antiquity. You know, it's a record of that we've been here, we've been through this kind of thing before. Um, and it's just, it serves as a repository of all our cultural um, the information that we've accumulated throughout the ages that's helped us survive and uh, flourish into who we are today. So always looking back on that um, as we go further in time into the future. 
um, the past is always there. And it's a yeah. constant reminder of where we've been and what we've done. Um, and I, I know we touched on this earlier, but like uh, conservation management, the applications that we learned from how people used to interact with nature and antiquity. And uh, like you said, um, they didn't, what was it? They didn't try to control nature much like we do. They kind of like lived with it. And so I think learning something from that uh, can help us a lot now, especially with climate change. For sure. Definitely. For sure. Lydia, thoughts? Oh, <laughs> hi. I was just making sure you were still with us. Do you have, do you have thoughts on uh, how maybe we can apply um, some of the things you study to, to modern life today? Why some of those things are so important? Okay, so apologies. My bandwidth is like going in and out. So that's why my video is <laughs> off so I can have like some chance. Sure. But uh, kind of going off of, because Carlos basically stole what I was going to say. Because uh, <laughs> it's like <laughs> conservation management and everything. Just kind of uh, like what you was talking about in episode one, where we're more connected with the land. And we just see the land as like a, as a way to live with it versus going and trying to manipulate it. And like, for example, like with the crops and the agriculture, Instead of trying and to have these like, I don't I don't know how to say it in words right now, but like instead of having like these uh, constant agricultural fields, like have like year round, like how they used to, and just kind of have like the seasonal foods instead of the constant carrots, corn, beets, like the constant foods that we're always eating, because I, I don't know, I feel like it. And other classes as well, like along that side, our research, like we always see like a different kind of diversity of uh, plants versus mm -hmm. like today, we always see like the same exact plant. So that's something we could apply to today, but how, if it would actually stand for a while, I don't know. Yeah, no, that's, and that, that's a great point that, um, you know, the, the concept of a monoculture is, is, fairly new not not i mean in the grand scheme of things the yeah. concept of a monoculture is fairly new and uh we could do a whole episode just on that and we probably will do a whole episode <laughs> just on that uh but no no that's that's really a good point that there are other ways of managing production and and mm -hmm. other ways of eating and eating seasonally and eating things that are actually native or at least well adapted to a region uh, yeah. as opposed to kind of how we live today. It's, it's a differently of very, definitely a very mm -hmm. different uh, mindset. Oh, definitely. Can't remember. Oh, I think it was Lath Latherus is what Alan was talking about, how people in uh, some Southeast Asian cultures, right? They lather. Yeah. They get a, what is that disease called? Lab Latherism. Latherism. I'd found that weird. Like, why would you eat this plant that's poisoning you kind of thing? But I guess they're adapted to it, you know. It's the new yeah, lactose the, intolerance. The, 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 there, there, there are specific reasons. I mean, it's not it for that reason <laughs> that they're eating it. Um, so, yeah, so that that is, judgment. you know, <laughs> Vikram, you've actually unintentionally hit on a question that uh, archaeologists actually debate a lot, <clears throat> which is, uh, how do we 
apply, quote unquote, the things that we're doing to the contemporary world. Um, and you'll find that there are really polarized responses. Uh, and you'll have some archaeologists who say, we aren't ap applying anything uh, right now. Um, and then you have others who are really excited. Like I'm thinking of a journal article uh, called uh, How Archaeology Can Save the Planet. Hmm. Um, so <clears throat> it's really interesting. And I think from my perspective, you know, working primarily with plant remains and biological remains in the past and sort of touching it exactly on what Lydia and, and Carlos said, one of the topics that paleoethnobotanists are really interested in is sustainability, hmm. especially when we have um, agricultural societies. Because in thinking about things that are comparatively new, agriculture is very new for our species. Sure. Um, especially when we're thinking about this in terms of the total time scale that we've been human, um, this is a really new phenomenon that we're still trying to figure out how to effectively uh, work with. And so actually there have been some archaeologists, archaeobotanists, paleoethnobotanists uh, who have tried to take some techniques um, from the past all around the world, things that are historically known or archaeologically known and try to apply those agricultural techniques um, today. And uh, I, I don't, I don't want to speak for them. I would let them uh, describe whether they think they were successful or not. So, <laughs> so, so, so that's one way. And that's my polite way of just avoiding that. Sure. Yeah, got uh, it. <laughs> entirely. So that, that's actually a thing, like um, raised fields, for instance, uh, which uh, we know that the uh, this Chinampa system that the Aztecs used in uh, what's today's Mexico, for instance. Mm -hmm. This is a method that folks have actually tried to, to bring back. Um, for its benefits. And another thing, which is actually, again, what both Lydia and Carlos touched on, which I think is really important, is what our data are able to do as well. And the way that we can apply it, it's a little oblique, but it's very important, I think, in bringing actual empirical data to narratives that we might have about the past and therefore what the future looks like. And you'll often hear for thousands of years, this is what people have done. And therefore moving forward, this is what we're going to do. Right. And, and I think that that actually can be very dangerous sometimes. And we can actually show, for instance, like, you know, no, something like a monoculture is like, like you said, something that's very new. And we should think about the, the benefits and the costs of something along these lines uh, or any really sort of any other topic that touches on sustainability. So I think one of the things that we can do and contribute is saying, like, look at this diversity that existed in the past and that um, it's very important, you know, when we're constructing and thinking about these narratives that we say, like, oh, in ancient times, this is how it was. Um, and really thinking about, well, okay, well, we have data, you know, and we can actually see um, to some extent uh, about what this looks like. But like I said, this is um, a, fairly, a, a fairly controversial field. And the last thing that I, I, I want to say there too is uh, on sort of living with nature is that, again, depending on who you talk to, there are mm -hmm. some folks, um, you know, we do see episodes of deforestation. In, mm -hmm. in the past, um, both the rem so-called remote past and the more recent past. We do see episodes uh, where 
there, you know, we, we might argue that some agricultural strategy wasn't more sustainable. So there, again, depending on who you talk to, with all due deference to those who disagree, who are listening to this, who are going <laughs> to email me about this later, um, <laughs> you know, we, we could look at that and say, and think about sort of the choices that are made or how society was structured or sort of what, what are the things that, that were going on and try to learn from that, just like we do today, right? When we hire consultants and businesses to study how businesses are run and we say, okay, how is this organization run? Um, and how can we improve upon it? What can we learn from either what's successful or what's not successful? So I think, you know, in an empirically informed way, we have the opportunity to do that um, as well with the stuff that we're doing. Even, uh, you know, eat all, all the juniper berries and the peach pits, I think that they actually have um, uh, a part to play in that too. That's really, that's really fascinating. That, and that, that's very good, uh, I think, insight into the field and into all the things wrapped up in it. Cause again, everything is complicated. Everything's complex and there's always moving parts, but, uh, but that that's really important. I think, um, context for, for what y'all do. I think it's really important context. So, um, just a couple more things. So I, uh, over the past couple of weeks put out a couple questions on Twitter, uh, to see if people had specific questions. And honestly, we've answered most of them. Uh, the Petri dish podcast asked about human plant interactions. We've talked about that a lot. Um, the Fox run environmental education center, uh, asked about methodology and, uh, you, you discuss some of your, um, methodology for finding the seeds and, um, uh, let's see, uh, Matt, uh, my friend, Matt, who I was actually the guest right before you, uh, asked about, are there foods they find that we still eat? And we talked about grains and peaches and, and some of these other things. The question I don't think we got to was from, uh, space nerd 19, which is, uh, pretty cool. Uh, what are the oldest plants that we've been able to identify? Or that maybe you specifically have been able to identify, because that, that may be a bigger question. Than... Triticum einkorn, the ancestor of modern wheats. Okay, there you go. What, oh. Alan? Is this wrong? <laughs> we, we have, uh-oh, the there, there's, some descent, there's some descent in the ranks here. <laughs> oh my, oh my. That, that is indeed the oldest domesticated wheat. Ooh. Okay, okay, see, I was on the right track there. <laughs> This is a good didactic uh, exercise here. <laughs> so, so Alan, what would you say is the, the oldest plant that, that y'all have been able to identify or maybe that we talk about a lot as one of the older ones? Yeah, that is a great question. I think, um, I mean, there, there are folks who are doing research in, in uh, 30,000 plus years ago who have been able to identify plant remains. Now, you typically can't find the seeds, um, mm -hmm. although sometimes it per conditions permitting, if it's really cold or if it's really dry, you might be able to find stuff. Typically that's, um, all the micro botanical stuff mm. and they've been able to, they can't really get very specific, but they see things like grasses that folks are probably eating. And, um, that's actually really cool because they recover this information and I'm going to plug here, uh, uh, dental calculus work, what they'll do is they'll actually scrape uh, calculus off of people's teeth and then 
analyze that calculus to look for microbotanical remains in that to see the wow. things that were accumulated. Yeah, and so we can actually see that going back um, if the if we actually have teeth preserved uh, going pretty far back. So we do have some oldest plant, uh, oldest macro botanical remain. I gotta confess, I don't know. Now okay. for the lab, I can answer that question. Oldest preserved, you know, I, I really want to say I have a feeling it's probably something from today's Siberia that that's pretty well preserved. Okay. The oldest, yeah, the oldest thing that I have seen, let me think here, is not very old because I mainly specialize in agricultural societies. So it's about 8,000 years old. And that includes all the foods that we see today. So okay. lentils, peas, wheats, barleys, um, all that stuff. Uh, that's 8,000 years old, which, I mean, again, for I think for most people, they're like 8,000 years old, you know, but <laughs> I, I, th I, th I think of a seminar once and this archaeologist, somebody was talking about their research and they're like, oh, you know, I look at the early Holocene and blah, blah, blah. And somebody said, I'm a, I work in the Paleolithic. The Holocene is, uh, that's current events. <laughs> Again, context is everything, right? Like perspective exactly. is everything. Uh, okay, cool. No, that's, uh, that, that is a great answer. And, uh, I will make sure and tag space nerd 19 when I Thank uh, you, space nerd. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question. It's a cool question. Absolutely. It's really cool. So the last thing that if you listen to the show, you know, I do, and I like to blindside guests with this, but now it's getting harder because a lot of my guests have listened to the show. Uh, and, and Lydia, you get bonus points earlier from calling out a topic from a specific, uh, uh, episode in the past. So thanks for that. Um, if you had one thing, um, whether it's a piece of advice about careers or life or studies or science in general, I really anything, if there was like one piece of like advice you could leave with our listeners as we kind of wrap up this episode, what would that be? And I, I'd like to hear just something from, from all of you. And it can, it can really be anything. Um, I think what I've been learning is that do whatever you want. There is nothing stopping you. <laughs> Yeah, word. That's great. I can't decide what I want to be in the future, and here I am making it. At the same, it's it's a confusing time. I'll admit, but I'm having the best time here. Well, there you go. Yeah. Honestly, because like we talked about a lot of the pop culture influences, like on how we view uh, anthropology and archaeology. You could make that happen because like field schools are very exciting. And uh, like, and honestly, you wouldn't think that doing like research in the lab would be very exciting, but at times it can be very much so exciting. Like the pop culture uh, influences that we have or the pop culture views that we have of archaeology and anthropology. So if you want to make that your dream, you really just have to put yourself out there and just go for it. Like what Carlos is saying, just make your future. That's awesome. That, and that that's really, I, I think both of those, that's really great advice. Well, thank you. And then thank I guess for experience. my part, uh, I would tell everybody, um, and, and not just now, but moving forward, and this was something that everybody brought up al already, 
you know, in terms of the nonlinear nature that we mostly move in is to be kind to yourself um, throughout the career track. Because I think, you know, there's a lot of pressure um, on a lot of folks to quote, make the right decision, right? But Mm -hmm. I think it's really important, you know, when you make a decision on anything, you know, not to beat yourself up about it and say, oh, you know, I've chosen the wrong thing or blah, 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 I should have done this, you know, to be kind to yourself and say, hey, you know, give yourself credit for the things that you are doing and the things that you have done. Um, Because most likely it took courage, you know, to Mm -hmm. do whatever it is that you're doing. So um, being kind to yourself throughout the process, um, whether it's linear or nonlinear. I'm still learning uh, how to do that. Is is really important. Every time I meet with Alan about the research project, I'm like, oh my gosh, he's going to fire me. <laughs> Today's the day he's going to say, what have you been doing to my team? And, and, and the, there, there, there you go. I feel that. For the folks who are listening, they're getting the inside scoop. <laughs> oh, that, that's and also, fun. <laughs> like, I feel like a lot of people, like they have, there's like some difficulties, like uh, like difficulties come up as well. So, like, for example, like, with our bandwidth and everything, mm-hmm. some people would just log off. But, like, just keep on trying because it might be rough right now, but then you'll emerge as a better person or, like, as a better version of yourself at the end. Yeah, I love it. Be kind to yourself. Do what you like and keep trying. Those are those are great pieces of advice. Um, So, y'all... I, I cannot tell you how much I enjoy this. And I, I I know I kept you on this call for quite a while, but but I appreciate your time and just your knowledge and, and wisdom and expertise. Um, this this is a so these will be the last two episodes that come out in at the end of year one or the you know, the podcast started in November 2019. And so this is these are kind of our anniversary episodes or right before that. And uh, I think that's super exciting. And I can't think of a better way to round out. Uh, year one of the show. Um, so w- where can we find you? Do you want to be found? You don't have to want to be found. I totally get that. But if you have like a Twitter <laughs> handle you want to plug or anything else, uh, uh, throw them at me and I'll put them in the show notes. Oh no. Avoid the Twitter. Uh, <laughs> man, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> for, for sure. Unfortunately, I've got to say in, in terms of contemporary science communication, not, not doing so well, but you know, definitely um, open open for anybody who's interested. You know, we have a lab website. Uh, I'll share that with Vikram. Please contact the lab if you're interested in anybody's research, the stuff that you just want to have a conversation, really anything. If you just want to say, wow, you know, can't believe you, do, you, you can do that. That's crazy. How, what is this flotation? What, whatever the case may be, you know, we're, we're really open and we'd love to hear from everybody. And just the last thing I want to say is thank you so much for inviting us. Um, you know, you really have so many wonderful guests on here sa- talking about so many cool things, including cephalopods, um, <laughs> that, right. you know, we're just, it's, it's really wonderful to be invited to be a part of, you know, what you've put together. So we can't thank you enough. And we're really excited to, to be able to contribute to what you've done. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And also we have a club, or UNLV Anthropology Society on Instagram and Facebook. If you guys would ever like to come and join it, it's open to all people. So not just anthropologists. So if you are ever able to, or if you're ever curious, you can always hop over there and join us. 
Okay. And don't be afraid to comment or anything on any of the posts. <laughs> you got to be careful telling people <laughs> that the internet's crazy. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, that's Get that's trolls. That's the yo. Well, they're they're out there. I've I'm on Twitter more than I like to be some days. But I uh, no, I I again, I really enjoyed that. That was a lot of fun. And uh, um, y'all take care. Keep being safe. Be well. And uh, to everyone out there listening, thank you so much for the past year. I can't tell you what it's meant to me. And uh, uh, we will keep moving forward. And uh, uh, take care. And we will talk to you next time. All right. Well, y'all, thank you so much. Again, uh, it has been a wonderful year. And I, uh, I'm i so happy to have had um, these three wonderful folks as some of my last guests of year one. So go check out uh, Dr. Farahani as well as everything else going on in his lab. Um, the link to their website and everything else is in the show notes. Um, y'all, you are the very best. I appreciate everything you've done for me all the listening, everything else. Um, Thank you so much to the Texas Tech Department of Plant and Soil Science for all the support over the past year. This this would not have been possible without you. Thanks to all my wonderful, amazing guests for giving up their time and their expertise um, uh, to talk to me and to teach y'all about nature a little bit more. I I lied a little bit. I do have one more episode that's going to come out before our technical birthday. So birthday is November 5th. On November 3rd, we will have a special episode with uh, Kyle Tangler, who's one of my closest friends and who is the first guest on the show. But I love you guys so much. Um, Find us on social media. Come drop a question. Hang out. Talk. Engage. You're the best. I'll see you on Tuesday. (laughs) 